connecting to the AOC Podcast Network. Enjoy your stay. So welcome, welcome to uh, Le Cadeau Podcast, and my guest today is Deanne Kalik. Is that the correct pronunciation? That is the correct pronunciation. Well, Kalik is not French, is it, or Cajun? No, it is not. What is that? It's German. Wow. Are you all German? No, I'm a hodgepodge. Most of us are not pure, though we may claim it. That's true. (laughs) Absolutely. So I've invited you today because you teach at the university, and your subject matter is sociology. Yes. Specifically, thanatology. Yes. And death and dying. Yes. I was a student of that class to your predecessor. Yes, you were. Sarah Brabant. And um, I have invited, I don't know that you invite a film, but I've arranged for a film to come to Lafayette next month, and it is called Suicide, the Ripple Effect. And so I would like us to talk about a subject no one talks about. Or if they do, it's always painful or it's a a big deal. And uh, in light of the film coming, there are now three major celebrities who have died from suicide recently. So it's a big topic. It's also a topic now because of PTSD and 22 veterans a day. And it's just a big topic. So I think, hello, what do you have to say? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I'm I'm sure besides a teacher, you have a lot of life experience being with people. Absolutely. And that's as important, if not more so, than being an instructor or a professor. As do you. A lot of life experience and a lot of being with people as a tutor. Exactly. So... Um, you know, as a sociologist, I, I start at the premise that all human beings are social creatures. And you have right. anthropological training, so you understand that. Exactly. We need others in order to feel whole and healthy. Yeah, we do. But part of that also means that when we're attached to other people, we will inevitably have loss. And how do we deal with that? Right. And we're a culture that doesn't talk about certain kinds of loss, or we do so with a lot of stigma. So when you bring up suicide, that in particular is one of the stigmatized forms. It it really is. And I was uh, um, uh, born into what I call the dark side of the Cajun culture. I I think everybody is, but we just don't necessarily know it. And... um, to just kind of generally explain that so you can understand it and it can be in this context, we are well known as people who live in the joie de vie or joy of life, which yes. means we party and we eat and we dance. And But a lot of that, if you're just trying to be happy and never owning any kind of grief, puts you in line to be unhealthy people. Absolutely. And and we have a lot of sadness even as a culture, from what we have experienced. So we need to somehow be able to balance the joy of life with the reality of grief and loss, mm-hmm. not avoid it. So that's kind of what I'm hoping to talk about today, maybe some sense of balance. And 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 bring it in terms of, 
I didn't think about it until I realized you were coming and you are a sociologist. Okay. So if we talk about death and dying from a religious perspective, then we have to talk like a Catholic or a Buddhist or someone who practices Judaism or Native American spirituality. So then we get so specific, we're just talking to our own people. True. And then if you talk about it medically, well, you know, death is going to happen to us with or without physicians. It's not too too much a medical thing. Mm -hmm. But if you talk about it through sociology, then you're generalizing, and it allows us to look at it not through my own personal lens, but the general lens of social behavior. So I think that's that gives us a a powerful place to be. We're not trying to convert anybody. You don't have to be a woman to understand we are two women speaking. You yeah. don't have to be German or of French descent either. So um, th that being said, there are some religious laws that we often try to bring in to comfort people. It doesn't always work. Like, you know, they're in a better place. Who cares? <laughs> That's not comforting. That doesn't help me here in the now. Exactly. Right. And I understand that we all have some sense of the next place is better. And then, and then there's also... A, if they did this to themselves, did they go to a better place? So maybe that's mm -hmm. a heavy place, but there's no light place. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. About what the religious institutions give us as answers? Maybe so, but how we need a bigger answer than a religious answer to this and, and keep it sociologically speaking because your loss may not be lightened by the logic of the faith you bring to it. We know that. Right. They have a lot of holy people that are grieving and grieving and won't can't for that for whatever reason. So I don't know. Because it's it's a promise in the hereafter that you'll be comforted. It's not a comfort in the moment. Exactly. And so I think what what we need in order to address the moment is to recognize first what humans are doing when we're when we're hurting. We want to self medicate. We want to stop that hurt. And right. we do that a lot of ways. You you named a few. You said we eat, and we do. We, do we eat, eat to excess. We drink to excess. We use legal and illegal substances to excess. And a lot of that becomes addictive. Some of us become mentally ill. Absolutely. To escape. Absolutely. Because I think most people don't understand mental illness as an illness. Okay? But when you understand healing and you understand disease... When we have a symptom, we have fever, it's to let you know your body has a need for something. Mm -hmm. So we have a defense, uh, I, and please correct if my terms are not correct. You know, uh, when men come back with PTSD, it's because they were in an unbearable situation. Yes, and their so, mind needed to break from that. Exactly. So mm -hmm. their mind allows them to live or live through an unbearable situation, exactly. but they can't always reconnect. Right. Um, oftentimes when someone is attacked or they've been abused or th then they, they create for themselves split personalities. Yes. And so then they can live in one of the personalities who maybe was not the one who was attacked. So then that illness allows them to survive until mm -hmm. they can get help and get well and get integrated 
or not. Exactly. We don't always get better. And it's a way of becoming fun- functional again. So, so if anyone develops mental illness, then that brings us to how are people in the culture treated who have mental illness? And, and in, in the West, specifically in the United States, and we don't treat people with mental illness very well. No, we don't. That's just like, a, it's just, it's a, it's a fact. It's looked at as a moral failing. So like in light of we have had these celebrities who died from suicide recently, and I've seen a lot of this on just general Facebook, 22 veterans a day take their lives, but a celebrity dies. And well, okay, first of all, a celebrity knows a lot of people, so they'll have a greater impact than just one soldier from one area who so there's there's more attention being put on death by suicide. So when a celebrity dies by suicide, we have an opportunity to do something, but all we do is complain that we don't do anything for the veterans who really need, and then how do we treat veterans? I think it's a cultural of denial. Exactly. And I, and I know that, and I don't know how to help us not, but I'm hoping that this film can show us something. Um, because most people in their Facebook, I'm just pulling off of Facebook, so it's sociologically what's happening. Well, how could they do that? They had all the money in the world. I mean, like, do, do we ever ask somebody, why did that person die of cancer? They were wealthy and well off. <laughs> No, we never think to say something Why? ludicrous like that. Because yeah. we don't even see this as an illness. Mm-mm. And I can't make people see it as an illness. I can only hope that the impact of this film will share and that our conversation as we share might allow people to quit looking at it as a... Um, a failing? Yeah, you should be locked up. You shouldn't yeah. even be here. Uh, I work with the Extra Mile... I don't know if you're familiar with that group. A little. So we were we were hired as volunteers mm-hmm. to help people at uh, Acadiana Mental Health, which has since come become uh, Henry Tyler Mental Health Center. And our job was just to support people who had mental illness, substance abuse, and developmental disabilities, and support the people who were working with them. And there was a whole lot of misinformation out there then and now. And I don't know how to disseminate information that it would be impactful. Because even when you do it in a classroom, we don't necessarily take that into the streets or take it to heart. So what what can we do? I think it needs to be a bigger cultural conversation. I think things like this film will help that to happen. I think, let me ask you this too, okay. If you, this is so true. Like I really, I know this is true. If you have mental illness, then you are looked down upon Mm -hmm. by everyone in society. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, you gave that to your children. So anyone who comes from a family with the lineage of mental illness well, you know, you're inheriting something that's unspeakable and 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 
and like, well, y'all should have all been locked up. The inference mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. your grandparents didn't have a right to live. Anybody mm-hmm. who does this, okay. And at one point, historically, we actually castrated and and <sighs> and made it po- impossible for people to procreate who had any kind of mental illness. Exactly. So you're very, you're right on target with how the culture has historically and currently is still viewing. So a perspective of someone with mental illness is that they should be neither seen nor heard. Right. And when when I was a volunteer, if someone had mental illness. They always made sure nobody at their work knew they were on their psych drugs because mm-hmm. they wouldn't get called back to work. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they could not get fired, but if their boss knew, they were seen as a threat or a mm-hmm. risk to. They would find a way to make sure that they did not come back. That yes. was a real thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay. So one day I had this thought, and I have been affirmed in what my thought is, and I'm going to share it to ask you, maybe instead of these people coming from a lineage of lunatics or insanity or whatever we, however we refer to someone today who has a mental illness, maybe they come from a lineage of sensitive people. I like that. Okay, and maybe this framework to put maybe this world is 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 too awful for people who are sensitive so if how do we get a perspective shift well the first thing is to open the dialogue like we're doing here and i think when i saw this film i saw that in kevin okay so the film is called suicide the ripple effect and and when you see it you'll see and he jumped off of the golden gate bridge and lived to tell about it but then it was the story of this man and his life it wasn't like, how can we help him more? He's not taking a back seat to his illness. He's doing as much as he can to bring hope and resilience to, to people who have attempted suicide or, or have succeeded in suicide. Just anyone or anything having to do with being like a champion, even though... He has mental illness, and he didn't die when he tried to kill himself. You can't look down your nose at this man in this film. And that, to me, was why I wanted to bring it here. I can't wait to see the film. I saw the trailer for it, and it was very moving, compelling. And I think just that trailer was enough for me to know that this conversation is beginning. The cultural competency that you and I are talking about that we need, it might start with this film. Yeah. Oh, and it has, you know, it it has. So what does sociology say about that? How can, as a subject, we take wanting to treat people? Sociology only studies what we do, doesn't direct what we do. There were the early sociologists, some, some of them wanted to direct. They, they couldn't be value-free, and they really felt that it was our imperative to do something to improve the human condition. Um, but more recently, sociologists tried to be value-free and uh, to study and report rather than intervene. I don't, as a, as a practicing clinical sociologist, I don't buy into the hands-off. I think we, we have a responsibility 
And part of that responsibility is to go out into the public and to educate whether that is in a formal setting where people are paying tuition or if you are pro bono walking in, you know, to a clinic and just sitting with the people in the waiting area and talking with them. Right. Wherever you can do outreach, you need to do it. That's the responsible sociological thing to do. Yeah. So because we can. We can. We absolutely can. So where does a sociologist get an audience besides in the classroom today? Well, we're having we get, a podcast. <laughs> today we, we have a podcast. Sometimes. And earlier you had something. Was that an audience kind of thing? Today, no, no, not today. But there there are workshops where I will speak at workshops. Um, I do facilitating for groups. I get invited to give QPR presentations, which is suicide-based intervention trainings. Uh-huh. Um, it just, I get invited to do a lot of things. So I invited you to participate in a panel. Yes. After the film. Yes. So this film will be at the Acadiana Center for the Arts on July the 3rd. The film will be shown at 7. It's a 90-minute film. So when the film is over, we'll have like a, a, a panel comprised of you who has and currently teaches sociology Sarah Brabant who was a pioneer in in death and dying she taught me and did a lot of training for people who became hospice volunteers she taught me as well oh my goodness Back in the 80s yes. how cool is that <laughs> so um so Sarah's going to be there and you are there in in that current position at the university but it's bigger than that oh, yeah. And uh, Louis Desitel, who is a union analyst and um, has been practicing for a long time and is from the area, um, I had y'all so that if the film brings up a real sense of need or a real urgency, then the answers would be general answers, um, not necessarily according to my psychiatric training or my church upbringing um, and, and not necessarily trying to be specific, but really giving some broader view to whatever individuals may have as questions. And then when people arrive, I'm um, having uh, tables with groups who offer support. And so I'm thinking... They can get support or connect with a support group before watch the film and then have some maybe in-depth question and answer time. And so hopefully if this opens uh, or brings pain or brings up things that is difficult, that people won't just be left, you know, with the open mm -hmm. of of what they have experienced. I think that's important to provide that support. Because you'll have people from all ends of the spectrum. You'll have people who I'll often, when I do a QPR training, have people in the in the audience who are petrified at the thought of asking the question. Exactly. And they they their eyes are huge. Their mouth falls open. You're serious? We should just come out right out and ask it like that? Oh yes, absolutely, ask it like that. But they, they think that even hedging it, um, you know, if I ask the question this way, you're not thinking of committing suicide, are you? That has judgment. Totally. All over it, wrapped around it with a big bow. But if I just ask, are you thinking of hurting yourself? 
it's a lot less laden with that judgment. Um, and it's a lot more direct. And it doesn't imply that I think you're wrong. You know, we we come at this, you know, so there there will be people who are afraid to even ask the question. Then you have people who aren't afraid to ask the question, but they've lived through it. They're survivors. And someone that they loved completed a suicide. And they don't know how to handle the questions that they do get asked and the ones that they don't get asked, but that they know people are thinking. Right. And so you have, you know, a complete... The, the audience that yeah. I expect us to have that evening is going to be pretty broad. To, so to have a panel of experts, I, I think, is an excellent mechanism of support. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm hoping that it really does justice to. And every question is addressed in the film. And and then it, it just was. It was so powerful. It was really, really powerful. So I have another question for you. Um, and that is, how do you feel about prevention? When you say suicide prevention, like I know people that no matter what would have been done, they were going to do this. We could not stop them from doing it. So why do we even use the word prevention? Well, I don't want it to be a, a battle over semantics, first of all. I think that you're right. There are people who will never be stopped. They are committed to the act of suicide. Um, and, you know, we're in a culture that has the patient's right to self-determination, that human beings as, that are deemed competent adults are allowed to make decisions, including starting a curative or um, a healing type of treatment and then stopping it. Right. We can start dialysis and say, you know what, I know it's, it's what's keeping me alive, but I don't want to stay on that anymore. We can start taking blood pressure medications, choose to stop those. We can start chemotherapy and then call in hospice. We can do all of those things. So that's part of our culture. But when someone who's not chronically ill, who's not terminally ill, wants to die by their own hand, we re- we immediately react with right. a, a very strong, like, wait, what? And we want to prevent and intervene. So semantically, those words are problematic, I think, when we get this hero complex of, I want to rush in and save and stop and fix, when we can't. There will be people that we just don't reach, and we may never know until they've already completed, because they're so committed to the act. Um, go ahead. That, well, that's what I was saying. So I used to I used to feel sorry for people who talked about preventing suicide because I know you really can't do that. So there was no logical sense inside my brain because because the act in an individual cannot necessarily be prevented. You can intervene and you can maybe prolong because of an intervention, but we can all do this. Mm-hmm. You and I can decide when we leave here that this mm-hmm. is the last day we're going to spend on earth. I think we're afraid of the power we have. I don't know. I never thought of it that way. But I also believe that if we, with this dialogue, can start allowing us to be okay and not judge people who are thinking about it, realizing I could do this myself, what do you really want? What do you really want? I know you can, but what do you really want? So that if we can give that kind of non-judgmental response as someone is considering and then work towards just being nice and releasing the judgment. The prevention can come when we have a better society and and some sense of reality that they're people. I think that that should, question, because I'm scared doesn't mean 
There's so much fear involved. Yeah. I think that question, what do you really want? That's the most important question. Because when you ask someone who has suicidal ideation, what is it that you really want? They don't say, I want to be dead. (laughs) What they say is, I want my pain to stop. I just want to stop hurting. And if we can help them find a way to address their pain that isn't that final way, that's intervention. That's prevention. Exactly. So when I saw the film, and I don't remember how, and I'm sure I'm misquoting, but but so Kevin jumps off the Golden Gate Bridge, and he said before he hits the water, he wished he hadn't done that. I saw, I saw that in the preview. And yes. I was so like, <laughs> oop, a little late. Yeah. But we can't think that they wish they hadn't when they completed the act. Because how, we don't know. We don't know, but mm-hmm. we can't even think that. we Because they're not here it it's just becomes so big and we try to deal with the bigness and the pain and mm-hmm. the lack of explanation it's just um it was amazing to have someone who was at that point be able to say it it gave him a whole human condition rather than uh, well, he was sick he was out of his mind he was at the time right because when someone dies in that way sociologically we erase their whole life oh and we only remember their death why it's awful that we do that we don't want to be remembered for something that was our final moment what about all of those wonderful moments before that that need to be celebrated i've seen that i've seen that and and and, and it's like well you know their brother doesn't talk about them their family doesn't talk about them this doesn't come from a church Mm-mm. it comes from individuals mm-hmm. and i don't know how to undo that People are afraid to ask about it. Well, because your final act is you leave Earth doesn't mean you never did something your whole life that was worth being here. No, it doesn't mean that. I don't know how we how we address that because we don't even know. I don't think people do that on purpose. I don't think they do either, but we don't talk about death in general. We get uncomfortable. Oh, you know, we, we splashed across the news. Don't get me wrong. But when we are in a funeral home, inches away from a body... We're talking about the weather, the game, what's coming on on TV tonight, we're to- everything else but the body in the room. Yeah. So we're uncomfortable having that conversation. The horse is on the dining room table. I know you read that in Sarah's class. Yeah. Okay. That, that horse is on the table. We know it's there, but we don't want to talk about it. Exactly. It's obvious. We can't see past it, but we, we're not going to discuss it. So if we're not going to discuss death in general, we're definitely not going to discuss the more horrific types of death, which suicide falls right. under. One of, one of my uh, daughters had a friend who died when they were in high school. And uh, the whole, a lot of her friends had gone to the funeral home and and uh, and the priest said, and and it was the first time I had ever heard a priest address this in this way. He said to everyone in the funeral home that there is no unnatural death; all death is natural. Mm-hmm. And 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 so you think of little babies dying, or murder, or uh, you know, a freak accident, mm-hmm. or accidental. Mm-hmm. You know, it, everything is natural. And we, maybe because we don't deal with death itself, we can't deal with it. It's all natural. But that was one of the most powerful things I ever heard from a member of the clergy. Mm-hmm. 
because it came with no condemnation, without trying to explain how this person's death fits into the belief system of that particular. And there were no excuses. There was no such thing as unnatural death. Wow, that was powerful. That is powerful. And it was good for the, the her classmates to hear. Oh, I bet. Um, so is there a way that we could have a sociology class geared for eighth graders? Oh, absolutely. I have three children and they were from, you know, zero <laughs> in class in sociology. So what could we, I, I, I don't know, I'm just like kind of. Well, I think, you know, you, just got, you have to start with the older generation and, and make sure that their fear subsides to allow for this sort of discussion to occur in an eighth grade setting or anything younger. Um, you know, I think children, we often ignore them as grievers and we ignore their ability to understand things. Um, certainly they're very literal. And so their ability to understand is limited to the the literal translations of certain things. Um, but we, they can certainly understand. We just need to address it to them at that appropriate developmental level. And sometimes I think what we perceive to be adult that is beyond literal is not helping the more mature person get it. Mm-mm. You know? Because they'll say, well... Does she know she'll never see her again? Do you know you'll never see her again? And what difference does it make? She's going to take it day by day, mm-hmm. and she's because you know just makes it more overwhelming. It doesn't necessarily make it easier to deal with. No, my mother died when I was nine, and did I know I would never see her again? Sure, I knew it, and I'm putting air quotes here. I knew it, but I didn't know it the way that I knew it when I was thirteen, the way that I knew it again when I was fifteen, when I was twenty-one. As I've gone all the way, I'm about to be fifty. Every time that I know it all over again, it's a different knowing. Right. But for someone who's mature and has that I know it, sometimes they're so overwhelmed with what they know that they can't even live the daily life like the little innocent children. Right. And sometimes their brain steps in and helps them to function by doing what it needs to do when we call that crazy. Exactly. But it's actually functional denial. Do you know the symptomology for grief as a diagnosis? Because grief is a diagnosis. It is now. And it's just like mental illness. Well, I I remember reading some of the symptoms. It's complicated grief. It's way complicated. It's it's what they're really trying to say is whenever the grieving gets in the way of functioning. But when you look at the symptoms... They, yes. They're mirror images of each other. Sociologists don't do that diagnostic stuff. We don't, we're not into the power of, we, we are too aware of the power of labels, so we're not into using right. those labels. But of course, for reimbursement purposes, we're in a society that needs that. But, but my point is that it looks like and feels like. So when someone is grieving, they're not necessarily comforted. Oh, they're just crazy now. They'll get over that. We, because we don't, we don't honor or respect or understand mental illness when it shows up as grief or PTSD or something like that that is legitimate in society. Mm-hmm. We tend to downplay it because mental illness is not acceptable. 
Well, Does that make sense? Yes. Sarah Brabant and I wrote an article about the pathologizing of grief. Right. And and we don't we don't need to pathologize Not grief. Not at all. It's normal. Just as the speaker said that death is normal. Right. So is grief. Can it become dysfunctional? Can it become pathological? Can it become problematic to the point where people split personalities? Absolutely. But that's the rare case. Exactly. It's not for most people what happens. But what I'm saying is that grief in its natural form is often not honored in a person because it's viewed as, oh, they just have been. Exactly. It'll pass soon. Right. So they don't always get their needs met because they receive the judgment oh, yes. of someone who is insane. Yes. And it, it's that whole. But I don't know if I agree with you when you say, oh, it'll pass soon, that people assume that, because I think it's a real sticky label, crazy. Well, exactly. Insane. It's it's one of those things that follows a person. Totally. And I'm not, um, people who don't want to deal with it will will often say, oh, they'll get over this. It's They'll get over it soon. They don't necessarily honor the reality of the person who is grieving because it looks like mental illness and it's foreign to Mm -hmm. them and they're like oh that'll be okay and kind of push it under the rug until such time but it's intense that makes a lot more sense and it comes that way it looks like mental illness and it's foreign to them so they don't know what to do with it and they push it away justifying it by saying oh she'll give her a year yeah it's that's not that's not in any way um helpful no it's not Yeah. So I don't know what impact this film can have on the people that come. I think it's going to depend who is in the audience and what their histories are. I would like to see people who serve the public come. I would too. I would like to see doctors come. First responders, firemen police all people who need to know how to ask that question yeah yes i would love to see that as well so that although it's a it's a documentary and it's open to the public uh, i think it would have quite the impact on people who actually um serve people with mental illness or people who may be threatening to jump off a bridge what does the policeman do how do you talk someone down or can you and so can you ask that question, what do you really want, and not be afraid and not want to be a superhero in that moment? Because you have to let go of, learn how to let go of your ego right? so that you're not trying to be a superhero and that whatever their answer is, you can go with that answer and help them to get to where they need to be. In the movie, they interviewed Kevin's rescuer who was a member of the Coast Guard. So he had picked up 30-something bodies wow. from having people who had jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. Kevin was the only one who was alive. And in the conversation, he told Kevin that he judged all those other people. They were weak or cowards or, you know, they didn't have to do that. There was... Because, but he said after Kevin came back and interviewed him, and when he picked up Kevin and he wasn't dead but alive, then Kevin became 
not a statistic, but a human being. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big thing that this film is. To put that human perspective in that human face. Yes. And so he grew a lot because because he rescued Kevin, and Kevin was alive. A lot of people are affected by this in ways. It, it, it gives a perspective shift if you're open to it. I was real impressed with that. I'm looking forward to it. So at what age do you think or how do you think we can have this discussion with children so that they don't have to have fear to begin with? Well, I don't know if you can ever eliminate all fear, but I I think as early, and of course this is going to be to the individual child, but as early as that child is able to communicate in a dialogue, I think you can begin to give age-appropriate answers to any of life's difficult questions. Don't give more detail than you need to give. Exactly. Don't If they're not asking for it, don't fill it in. Exactly. But I would absolutely have no problem talking to a young child. In fact, I had a nine-year-old in a group um, whose father suicided on the anniversary of his grandfather's suicide. And he thought that he himself was destined on that date to suicide as well or he, self-fulfilling prophecy he, he really did think that and so you know at nine years old we were having a very good and open discussion at an age-appropriate level of what that meant what it what it looked like and and how right. did he need to understand it and in fact he he kind of we, we taught each other a little bit that day one of the things that i said to him had to do with a stomach ache um, and I, I asked him, had you ever had a really bad stomach ache? And he said, yeah. And he started, you know, describing all of the symptoms of the stomach ache. Oh, it hurts so bad. And I said, well, you know, what if you had to do math homework at the same time you had that really bad stomach ache? Oh, Miss Deanne, I could never do that. It was awful. That was the kind of stomach ache that, oh. And I said, well, but it, it would be real hard to, and the, and the reason I asked him math is because math is a logic based yeah. activity. Okay. Totally. So if it's, if, if you can't, if you're hurting so bad, you can't make logic based decisions is where I was going with this. If you can't do math, then everybody can't see that stomach. Can they? And he said, no, no, they can't see my stomach hurt. And mental illness and, and mental health issues are like that. We can't see them. Mm-mm. So if somebody's hurting, if they have depression, if they have psychological pain, we can't see that. And so that's what I said to him. I said, your pop and your your father, they both had a, a lot of pain. You just couldn't see it. It was like that stomach ache. And it would be like you trying to do math and think about all the things you have to do to get that math problem right. You can't think about stuff logically when you're hurting. It hurts too much. So the only thing that they could think about was wanting their pain to stop. And they couldn't think about the other logical things that they could do. If they wouldn't have been hurting, they might have made some very different decisions. Right. And so we're here to help you get some help with your pain so that you don't make the decisions that they made. And so we came away from that conversation, he and I, with a very different approach to how he was looking at that particular date and what he thought it meant for him. Wow, yeah. That makes that makes total sense. And it, it goes And he was 9. He was 9, but I had a 50-year-old recently ask me, you know, something along the lines because of the recent suicides in the media. Um, you know, why? What what gets a person to that to that point? And I said, "Well, have you ever been in severe physical pain?" 
well, you know, I broke this. I was in labor once with a child, you know, and I was like, okay, those are pretty bad. Those are pretty intense pains. When you were in those, those situations, was it ever so bad that you would have done anything to make it stop? Oh yeah. I threatened to jump out the window if they didn't pull that baby out. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well, there you go. Okay. I threatened to jump out the window. Were you seriously wanting to be dead or did you just want your pain to stop? I just wanted my pain to stop. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that we also, because we don't address it, the only answers we can give are logical. And there's never a logical answer to that intense pain. No, there's not. Okay. Especially if we never had that pain. Like what does a man know about having a baby? Right. Or what does someone who never had a kidney stone know about the pain of a kidney stone? Exactly. I hear that's pretty bad. So, mm-hmm. so I can't relate in that way. But whenever they have this pain, we just want them to shut up about their pain because we don't know how to deal with mm-hmm. that pain because and I don't mean shut up in a bad way. We're not. No. We do. We can't deal with someone's pain, so we want to. Well, then we want to feed them. <laughs> we want to feed them. We want to give them some medicine. medicine. Let's go to the show. Let's forget this. You know, here have wanna, a drink. <laughs> we do something to escape this pain. Mm-hmm. Let's escape it. Let's together. go gambling. Yeah. Let's do anything else. Yeah. Let's distract. Mm-hmm. And distraction just does just that. It just distracts. So what do you understand sociologically about the pain of a culture? Can I counter it and say, yes, I I think what we need to do Mm -hmm. when people are in pain and we're aware of this pain, we've asked the question. Yes, yes, yes. We need to express our love and compassion for them as another human being. And I don't care if you're a healer. I don't care if you are an expert. I don't care who you are. That connection. When I started this podcast with you, I said about human beings being social creatures. Right. We need that connection to exactly. others. Harry Harlow, I don't know, 50, 60 years ago, did those experiments with the monkeys, the, the non-human primate experiments. Where exactly. The monkeys were raised in isolation and, and they were given an opportunity. They could either cling to a terry cloth cover uh, mother figure um, that was soft and comforting or they could get fed at this very um, cold steel bottle that had you know sustenance attached to it but what they observed repeatedly with those monkeys was that they would only go to get the food for as brief amount of time as possible and then they would go back and cling to that terry cloth Exactly. Because we need that comfort and that connection to other. And I think if if I can reach out to you psychologically and I say to you, I care. I care about what happens to you and I want you to get the help you need and deserve. And we need to make those resources available. We need to not only make them accessible but affordable. Exactly. And and well known how how to get there and, and who to go to and who's the, the person that's going to be able to help us. Right. But if I could put that in, in some sociological term that's not, it's not been copied or anything yet, there's no term for this, but I would call it a cultural hug in a sense. If we right. could do that, like if you're in a therapist's office, that's the, the equivalent of a metaphorical hug. Exactly. It's a verbal hug. 
I remember at some point, and I don't know when I learned this, but there were children who died during World War II because of failure to thrive. Yes. Because they were just not able to be picked up and nurtured and yes. hugged and loved. But exactly. they had food. Food is not enough. It's not enough. And uh, actually, Montague food did a whole love. lot of things on touching Yes, in the early 70s. Yes. I, I didn't even know what anthropology was. I found out later he was an anthropologist. So it's like the need to touch each other. And, and, and so on that level, the challenge is how can I as a human being who have never had that massive amount of pain watch you hurt? Can caring allow me to stand with you? Just caring, is that enough? I think it is. Oh, yeah. I think you have to care in order to stand with someone. Right, and then that goes counter. You you have to have a separation between you and these people as a professional. Sure. It's just, it's backwards, but it makes total sense. I know that a lot of therapeutic interventions say don't touch don't ever touch the client okay so more people are are comfortable with the metaphorical hug i'm going to verbally support and and touch you but i think if we if we just had the loving arms of a and i'm going to use mother figure because it's a culturally recognizable icon yeah but you know if we had that mother's embrace to just be held not a quick pat on the back hug and you're on your way, but to just be held. That is such a comfort. It's powerful. I went to, um, I, I'm trained in different ways of doing healing work. And, uh, and one time I was, I was in training and the, the, we, we would work with a partner, so to speak. And so my partner was a brother, not a priest, but a brother, a clerical brother. I, I don't remember which kind of brother. And, um, and he was moved to tears during our exchange. And, well, we can all be moved to tears, but but he looked at me with the most sincere essence, and he said, you have no idea how touch-deprived we are. And then I wanted to cry because he's a brother, father figure, priest-like, nun-ish kind of, who can't snuggle with the kids when he comes home. He, 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 he goes to eat at people's houses, and there's this big formal thing. And I mean, we I don't know how to correct that, but that's not a right thing. No. Because he is not receiving the nurturing. He needs to be able to metaphorically hug other people. Right. And like when he said that, I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. We're wrong in each other like this. I don't know. But but that's what I hear you saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. And we we you know yes, there is bad touch out there. Oh my God, yeah. You know Hello. we've we've been talking good touch, bad touch for years now, but we've forgotten good touch. Forgot healthy touch, healthy touch, and yeah. healing touch. Now those of you who and I, you're Reiki trained, aren't you? Uh-huh. Okay, so those of you who have that certification and are able to touch, you know, cer- you're certified and able to touch or. Who yeah, have. but listen, you can't touch unless you become a reverend because I don't have the authority to touch because I am neither medical or religious. So we it's had close. to do from a distance. Yeah. Now, does that make sense? No, that doesn't make sense. Okay. So then I had to go become a, a reverend. Even though I was a Eucharistic minister in the Catholic Church, I had to become a reverend. 
to be able to to be able to touch so that someone wouldn't sue me well i finally figured out they can sue me i don't have that much it doesn't matter but <laughs> but everything is set up to protect ourselves yeah. financially and what it does is it makes us shut down in a warm and caring way it does so if we're able to do it metaphorically we might <laughs> go that direction but I, you know, I really think that's part of the issue. We're we're numbing out with medication, legal and illegal, right? And then not able. We're touch deprived. That that's failure to thrive. Well, yeah, exactly. So this is my question. When I said culturally a while ago, I meant this, and maybe we should just have another whole visit because our time is running out. But. Um, some of the French people here came from Canada after having been le grand de, gone through what we refer to as le grand dérangement. You know, we were exiled from Canada. Okay. Right. Some of us came here because of slavery. And some of us were native peoples, and and then they were totally rejected as native people even though they were already here so we have a combination of native american african american and european americans or canadian european americans that have a common bond of having been culturally experienced a diaspora of sorts okay so does sociology look at the nature of a culture in that way, that's what I was getting at, and we can save that for another time. But absolutely. But are you asking me in terms of the nature of this culture specifically with regard to suicide? In a way, because I, I'm beginning to see and/or understand and studying some Jungian work of a particular analyst here who is part of the Jungian Society in Switzerland. Um, and I've had some conversations with her that the grief of slavery, the grief of the Trail of Tears, the grief of having been exiled is something we don't understand, but is something that we carry. Yes, and culturally are ashamed of. So then, so then where does the joy and the grief get equal billing? So that they can be like night and day. They don't. Black and white. Or we bury that grief. Yes. And, and, and I would that say causes us to have very high rates. If you look, we, we spoke off. Oh, yeah, we did. Of, of, uh, it was Evangeline Parish. Yes, <laughs> we did. Um, and I don't know how Acadiana compares to Evangeline Parish? The other parishes in the Acadiana region are at normal rates, and when I say normal, for the country, but not Evangeline Parish. And I think, you know, part of that, if you look at the rates of alcoholism mm -hmm. in Evangeline Parish and other substance addictions, but um, it's it's off the, the charts there, and I, I think that's part of the joy of life, you know, but it's, it's a numbing out of the exactly. pain of life. So I think the two are there, but one is celebrated and the other is... Buried. Buried. For lack of a better word. Yes. Yeah. So I would think, um, you know, I, I personally know a lot of people who have died from suicide. And I, I don't know what... It, 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 but it's something that we can look at without having 
We don't. We can't always do. And I think that's another thing. You're in pain. I want to relieve it. So let's just do it. You know. Okay. You're in pain. I can sit with you in your pain. I can sit with you. That's another. We can't necessarily bring relief to each other, but we can care. We can companion. Yeah. And make sure someone's not alone. Wow. Well, um, thank you for not letting me do this podcast alone. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you for letting me come in and join and you. And if a topic hits you that you want to come and do a podcast about that has anything to do with healing or something we need to know about, I think awareness is the a first part of healing. You know, absolutely. Please, you have an open invitation, and I hope to see you on July the third. Absolutely. Um, it's. The way to get tickets to that is all online, and it, and if you want to come to that at the ACA, 7 o'clock on Tuesday, July the 3rd, you do uh, suicidetherippleeffect.com, and you can buy tickets and invite people who you think serve in this field to come and get this kind of opportunity to be with others and face something we don't even want to talk about. My challenge is... Filling up the Acadiana Center for the Arts with tickets that cost $16 a piece about a topic nobody wants to. (laughs) (laughs) But I think they really do want to. They're just afraid. And I I hope that that whoever can, can, and we do fill it up, and it makes a difference for some, even one. Even one. That's all that it needs to do. Thank you, Deanne. Thank you, Becca. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Le Cadeau Podcast. I'm your host, Becca Begno. Matt Roberts produced the show. Thanks to AOC Community Media for the use of their facilities. For information about AOC, you can visit aocinc.org. Thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. The views and opinions expressed on this or any program on the AOC Podcast Network do not reflect the views and opinions of Lafayette Consolidated Government, Cox Communications, LUS Fiber, AOC Community Media, its board of directors, or its staff. To learn more about becoming a community media producer, visit us on the web at aocinc.org.